Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, we come to a section that I think in some ways it's been misunderstood and misused. On the other hand, it's also been completely ignored so often by the church. And Paul, here in these verses we're going to look at today, talk about some of his principles of ministry and the motivation for his ministry and all in a way that should challenge each of us individually. And it should also challenge us as a church and challenge the body of Christ as a whole in terms of what we are willing to do and how we are willing to do it in order to do the job that God has given us to do. He's been addressing the whole issue of dealing with and accommodating people's weaknesses and not offending them and and how he's willing to, rather than offend people who have problems with eating meat sacrificed to idols, he says, well, then if I have to, I would never eat it again. And rather than offend people who are used to pastors being out for the money, and he said, well, even though I have a right to be paid, I'll work for free and get my money somewhere else rather than to stumble people. Now in verse 19 here, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he lays out his basic principles and he says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I, may, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul talked a lot about freedom, and he knew what it was after having been a slave of the law, basically, being raised in a rigid religious system. And for him, joining up with the Pharisees, which was a group of Jews who were so hardcore that they, they decided to be the most righteous people they could be. And the very name Pharisee means someone who's separated, someone who's basically not like everyone else. And so Paul was raised with that, and he had discovered what a burden it is to try to live a good religious life. But at the same time, though he had been set free by Jesus Christ, knowing that his sins were forgiven, knowing that nothing that he does would cause God to stop loving him, nothing that he could ever do would cause God to love him more. Yet, he makes the point that my freedom was something that set me free to really be a servant of others. Over in Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about this, and he says, you've been set free, but don't let your liberty become an occasion for the flesh, but in love, serve one another. That's kind of his message here, too, is, you know, recognize that though you can do anything, there isn't anyone who's holding a club over your head and 
threatening your salvation if you do certain things. Certainly, Paul didn't live a life that looked like he was always worried that he was going to break someone's rule. But at the same time, he said, because I have this freedom, because I've been set free from the need to please anyone or the need to do certain things in order to cause God to be happy with me, yet for me, I've allowed that freedom to set me free to truly serve others, to love others, to live by that great commandment. You know, as, as he said in here talking about the law, he says, I'm not under the law, not without law toward God, but under law toward Christ there in verse 21. Paul was someone who was very aware of his responsibility as a Christian to follow Jesus Christ, and that meant for him to love others, to obey the great commandment that Jesus gave, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you do that, you fulfill the law. That's what it's all about, loving. Later on in chapter 13, Paul talks about what life is like if you do all kinds of great things, but you do them without love. It's nothing. And so he says, what I do with my freedom isn't try to find out what I can get away with, but instead, I feel like I am free to serve others, to love them, to show concern for them. Now, in showing that concern, he had a definite strategy. And his strategy was one of flexibility. And that's what we see in these verses. He said, I don't lock myself into being a certain way. And then if people don't like it, tough. He said, I am looking for creative ways to build bridges to others. I'm understanding what my responsibility is, and I'm not going to let my style get in the way of my message. And so he has this amazing flexibility in dealing with people. As he uses the Jews as an example first, he said, to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. Now, Paul was a Jew. He grew up as a Jew. There was nothing that he understood better than rigid Judaism. And yet, when he was set free, he realized it's obeying all those dietary laws and obeying all those restrictions, that's not going to affect my position with God at all. And so, at the same time, as he was set free, yet, there were still Jewish people he deeply cared about. Now, his primary mission wasn't to the Jews. He was called, and God told him that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. But still, when you look at your background and you go, I understand how the Jews think. I see what they are trapped by. And as a result, Paul had a great passion for the Jews. And he desired for them to be saved so much so that he said in Romans that, he said he'd rather give up his own salvation if it would mean that his brothers in the flesh, the Jewish people, could see the truth of the gospel. And so Paul did on many attempts try to reach the Jews. And here he describes it as becoming as one of them, becoming as under the law. Paul didn't go in and offend the Jews. He didn't, he didn't walk into the synagogue eating a ham sandwich asking about ordering lobster, you know, and, and just even though he knew he had discovered actually 
it's okay to eat a ham sandwich. But when he went to the Jews, he talked to them as a Jew. Now, I believe personally that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. A lot of people don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, and one of the main reasons why they don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews is because he never, it never says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. But personally, I think that because Paul knew that the Jews had problems with him ministering to Gentiles, it's probably why he wanted to get that incredible message of Hebrews across to the Jews, that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. And he knew if he put his name on the book, it might have offended them. So he was willing to not take credit for the book because he cared so much about getting that message across to the Jews, even though it meant that most many theologians think Paul only wrote 13 books of the New Testament instead of the 14 that I think he really wrote. And the fact that 13 is an unlucky number and 14 is twice the perfect number, seven, Paul was willing to say, I don't care about all that. And yet you see the passion that he had for the Jews. And when he went and spoke in the synagogue and when he talked to the Jews, it wasn't to tell them that Judaism is bad. It wasn't to go in and offend their Jewish sensitivities. In fact, in one case, he encouraged Timothy to be circumcised. Tough sell to a guy in his upper teens. But because Timothy was half Jewish, Paul thought, hey, this might open doors for ministry to the Jews. And so it's no problem. Go for it. Do it. Another time there in Acts chapter 21, Paul, in order to, at the suggestion of James, because Jews were getting bummed at Paul, Paul went and sponsored a bunch of Jews to go in and be purified in the temple. And Paul went through that purification ride himself. He was willing to bend over backwards to go a long way in order to not offend the Jews so that, as he says, he could win them. He would be able to get through to them. And so if you saw Paul trying to minister in the synagogue, he would seem like another rabbi just with a different message. Now, as he goes on to say, but to those who are without law, I became as without law. Now he goes, not that I don't have a law at all, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. In other words, I wasn't under the ceremonial law of the Jews. I was still under the moral law of God. I, in order to reach people who are without law, I wouldn't sin to do it. But I was always governed by that great commandment, the law of Jesus Christ that says you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And that was my mandate, and that's my restriction. But anything that fit within that, as long as I wasn't to um, do something that would go against what God told me to do, or as long as it wasn't to do something that was unloving, I was willing to go to great lengths to make connections with the Gentiles so that I could win them. For Paul, this meant things that he had long been offended at, now he realized, you know, if I'm going to go to Gentile potlucks, there's going to be ham and all sorts of other things that we aren't supposed to eat, that all my life I was taught not to. But I'm not going to go there and insist that, you know, they put on yarmulkes and they accommodate. No, I, I'm willing to bend over backwards and even eat things that might be disgusting to me. Peter had to learn this when he had that vision before being called to go to Cornelius' house. Peter was staying there in the house of Simon the Tanner. 
He was up on the up on the deck on the roof, and he had a vision of a blanket that opened up with all these offensive foods that Jews weren't supposed to eat. And God told him, eat this. And Peter goes, not so, Lord. I, I'm not going to do that. And the Lord said, no, you need to not count something um, unclean that I have pronounced clean. And now there's going to be somebody coming to you, and you're going to go to this guy Cornelius's house and preach the gospel to a bunch of Gentiles. And so you can't act so Jewish. You can't act so proper and offensive. They're not going to connect with that. Peter, you're going to have to realize there's a new set of rules, and the rule is that I want to reach out with my love to all people. And so Paul said, hey, when I was around people who are without law, who didn't have that tradition, then I accommodated myself to their sensitivities. And I was willing to sit with them and to participate in things they were doing as long as it wasn't a sin, even though it was things that didn't fit with my tradition. And again, to the weak, I became as weak that I might win the weak. He had been talking about the weak people earlier and saying, you know, there's some people who are just really sensitive about certain things, like meat that's sacrificed to idols. But Paul had said in the previous chapter, I'd rather never eat again than to eat something that would stumble someone and keep them from getting saved or cause them to fall away from a relationship with the Lord because of something that I eat. And so Paul said, if I realize people are real sensitive about something, I became sensitive to it as well. I didn't just come busting in and be as offensive as I could be and do things that would upset people because I realized that I have a calling. I have something that God wants me to do. Now, he makes it very clear what his calling is as well. Makes it clear that his methodology was flexible. He would conform to whatever it took in order to present the message that he had to present. But his message, verse 19, the end of the verse, that I might win the more. Verse 20, towards the middle of the verse, that I might win Jews. At the end of the verse, that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, the end of the verse, that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, middle of the verse, that I might win the weak. And the end of verse 22, that I might save some. So he says, I want to win, I want to win, I want to win, I want to win, I want to save. Paul knew what he was called to do primarily. And his primary call was to get people saved. And he said, I want to do anything possible. I want to be open to whatever methods might connect. I want to make sure that I eliminate any behavior on my part that will stand in the way of me being able to win men and women, boys and girls for Jesus Christ. And he says, I do it for the gospel. That's my deal, verse 23. I do it for the gospel's sake. I wonder how often we think about what we do and how we act affects whether or not people are one for Jesus Christ. Sometimes we spend a lot of time not even thinking about the fact that people out there are lost, that they really need to be saved. The gospel is this. Well, before the gospel, the fact is everyone is doomed to hell because of sin, because we violated God's commands. Every one of us is heading for destruction. 
every one of us is in serious eternal trouble. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, paid the penalty for us, and offers for us eternal salvation. As we believe that he died for us and rose from the dead and we commit our lives to him, we enter into, enter into life abundant and life eternal and we realize I get to spend the rest of my life in heaven. Now, if you're a Christian, there was a day when you realized, and maybe it was over a period of time, when you discovered that you didn't have to go to hell, that you didn't have to live your life enslaved to sin but that you have an opportunity to enter into eternal life. Paul was so aware of that that that's where his whole focus was. Paul was so aware of that that he said, that's why I do what I do because I want to win people for Jesus Christ. I want to see people saved. Now, in the church throughout history, we often talk about two great declarations. The Great Commission which is the command from Jesus Christ that we would go and share the gospel, that we would make disciples, that we would preach the truth of the gospel to everyone, going wherever we could to let them know that salvation is offered to them. The Great Commission. You lose Christianity if you lose the Great Commission. But another thing that's often discussed alongside it is the Great Commandment. The commandment of Jesus that says, this is my commandment that you love. My commandment is that you care about others. The law is fulfilled when you love your neighbor as yourself. And so throughout church history, the church has kind of grappled with and struggled with trying to balance these two concepts, the great commission and the great commandment. In so doing, the church often swings as a pendulum from one direction to another, one emphasis to another. Well, over 100 years ago, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a great revival that took place throughout the world. One, some of the greatest times of missionary endeavors, the gospel being spread and preached, so many new missions organizations popping up and then flowing forth from that, evangelists who were spreading the gospel all over the world. Many of us are fruits of that revival as God just poured his spirit out and people were saved. And in the early part of the 20th century, it wasn't unusual in a town for the headlines to be how many people came forward at a revival meeting or how large the response to an altar call was. And that was a great thing. But what happens so often when we become focused on that is then we lose sight of compassion for others. We turn in among ourselves, and as was so often the case towards the middle of the last century, that great movement of the gospel turned into a great legalism within Christianity. And the church developed in the 40s and 50s and 60s post-World War II in a way that the church became more known for its legalism, more known for its its restrictions, more known for its culture, more known for its political positions and political power than it was for the message of the gospel. And as a result, there were a whole lot of people who couldn't relate to 
the possibility of Christianity because, well, those people, they're so stuffy. They're so conservative. I'm not a conservative. It doesn't fit with me. They recognize that for the most part during the first half of the 20th century that so much of Christianity as existed in most of the churches in the United States was a completely white bread version of Christianity where there was a whole segment of society who were being treated like second, not even like humans. In Within many of our lifetimes, a time where there were people who, because of the color of their skin, in many places in this country, they couldn't go drink at a drinking fountain. They had to have their own. They couldn't go in the same bathroom, stay in the same hotels. Even the great baseball players, some of the greatest baseball players who broke the color barrier and had to stay in a separate hotel from the rest of their team, that was going on in an America where people were getting saved constantly. And the doors to the churches were closed to a lot of people. And so why would you want to partake of Christianity when that's what it was? Frankly, we as a body of Christ blew it in a lot of areas, didn't speak up where we should have. And as a result, it became an ingrown, inbred sort of phenomenon. Now, growing forth from that, there were reactions to it by people who were saying, wait a minute, what about the great commandment? And so within some of the great denominations in our country, there was a move toward a liberalizing and an accommodating of people who are different. There was a move toward we need to be more compassionate. We need to feed the hungry. We need to clothe and house the poor and things like that. And so a great segment of the church became focused on what became known as the social gospel. That is, how can we help people? And there were, the church was then split, and then you had movements like Calvary Chapel and other movements whereby they started to say, maybe we could do rock and roll music, and God might use it. Maybe we don't have to, maybe people don't have to wear ties, and maybe we don't have to look a certain way. Maybe we can be open to what God might do. So then all these people who had been closed to Christianity before that, now we're coming to the Lord and just excited because they were looking for peace and love and they could find it in Jesus Christ. So then you had churches that were very staid and conservative. You had churches that were kind of hippie churches. You had liberal churches within most of many of the denominations that were focused on social work but not preaching the gospel. And you go, it was all seemed to be a trade-off. You had people who had really solid doctrine who, for the most part, were neglecting the great commandment to love. But you had liberalism come up, whereby it's like people who were legitimately compassionate for people who were in need, but for the most part, they watered down the gospel. The gospel got lost in the shuffle of how can I reach out and feed all the hungry people, and how can I help set people free and all. And so you had this impossibility, really, of representing the Great Commission while also representing and answering to that Great Commandment. And really, you can go throughout church history, and you will see this tension, and you will see this cyclical development whereby there's a spiritual revival of people who discover man's sin. And the fact that the gospel answers that. But then you will see over time then as people realize that 
We're getting too closed in. We're not reaching out. So then there are new methods and new ideas and ways of reaching out. And But what happens is somehow the gospel can often get lost in the shuffle. Now, Paul gives us both the mandate of flexibility and methods while at the same time maintaining the focus that it is all about people getting saved. And if you forget that the biggest problem that this world has is that people are sinful and they need to find an answer to that by discovering that Jesus Christ died for their sins, it doesn't matter how much other good you do for them. You will leave them dead in their sins. And so Paul would tell all of us, be willing to be flexible. Look for new ways, as long as it's not sinful. Find creative ways to build bridges to people. Be willing to accommodate them, even if it's uncomfortable to you. Even if the style of music is offensive to you or doesn't seem hip enough to you or whichever it is, be willing to compromise on style so that God's work can be accomplished. If somebody comes up with a great new idea for evangelism, be open to it. It doesn't always have to be the way you got saved. There can be a whole lot of different ways of reaching people. But in all of that creativity, don't lose sight that the focus is to win people for Jesus Christ, to save some. Every once in a while, I hear of a great new gimmick. And one of them, I remember a few years back, there was a guy who decided that, you know, the church is just getting known too much for stuffy Sunday worship and, and you know, do's and don'ts. And, you know, if you're a Christian, you can't drink and that kind of thing. And so he decided to start a new ministry, and he wouldn't call it church at all. So it didn't meet on Sundays. It met on, I think, Friday nights or Saturday nights. And, and they met there, and when you came, boy, it was a lot different than any church you've ever gone to because they had an open bar cocktails being served, and boy, you come in, and it's like, wow, I've never been to any church like this. this is, and so naturally, there were a lot of people who were attracted who wouldn't have been attracted to any other church. Definitely, free drinks will get people into church who would never come otherwise. And the fact that it didn't meet at a church helped as well. And the fact that the guy didn't dress like a pastor helped as well. And boy, it got a lot of attention. The newspapers wrote big articles about it. A radical new way of getting the truth out. The problem was, he found out that the kind of people who would come in order to get a free drink, they didn't really want to hear about sin. They didn't really want to hear that they were lost. They didn't want to hear that they needed to be saved from something. And so realizing that, they began to soft pedal it a bit and let's make sure that we're not offensive and so we won't use words like sin. We'll talk about being lonely or something like that and how can you handle your loneliness or how can you be more successful. And, and so this whole thing developed totally good intentions. After the guy kept having affairs with women in the, in the non-church, it did sort of affect it quite a bit and people were figuring, okay, I may come, but I'm not bringing a girl here. And eventually the whole thing fell apart because basically they lost focus with what ministry really is, that it wasn't about the gospel. You'd come there and feel good, but you wouldn't get saved. 
And that is so often the case as we get creative. Now, we're always looking for, like, the, the uh, shoebox ministry is a great example. To, to be able to put a bunch of toys in boxes and take them down to little kids in Mexico, what a nice thing to do. It's very compassionate. It's very, you know, they appreciate it. Most of those kids won't get a present. But the real test is, is the gospel going to be preached? Will people get saved from it? And because they will, and I believe that when I put toys in one of those boxes and I take it down there and give it, I believe that there's a good chance that that's one more person who's going to be hearing the gospel, listening to the good news. I'm not going to win them all. Every kid won't get saved, but I am convinced that this December 15th, when we bring those boxes down there, I'm convinced that there are some people who will go to heaven instead of hell because of what we're doing, and that's why we do it. And yeah, it's creative and unusual, but it's great as well. I'm convinced that, as I talked to you last week about El Salvador, as we're giving them some money to help the churches down there, I know that that's going to pay off with people getting saved. I'm, I'm confident of it. I'm certain. And they use some unconventional methods down there. They have soccer leagues, and, and in order to sign up for a soccer league, you have to go to church. But the test is, I'm going down there, and I'm seeing all these people getting saved. You don't have to get saved to play in the soccer league. You don't have to get baptized in order to be in the soccer league, but people are being saved and baptized. They end up becoming ministers and missionaries. They're School of ministry is full down there of people who want to serve God. And it started because somebody got the idea of sponsoring some soccer leagues. They love their soccer down in El Salvador. I can't figure out why, but they do. And as a result, it's like, you know what? I'm happy when I go down there and see people playing soccer, knowing that they're going to hear the gospel. And I believe that there are there is no limit to different ways that God could come up with for people to share the gospel. And that's Paul's heart. I am flexible. I will accommodate whatever it is that they are into in order for the gospel to be spread. I saw this in the years that I was really involved in the martial arts. We had a karate studio, and it was fun, and I enjoyed that. But you'd think, how come hitting and kicking people is something that's worthwhile for a Christian to do. And I'm not going to say that every part of fighting I was doing just because of the gospel. I actually happened to enjoy hitting and kicking people. But <laughs> as I got older, it became more unpleasant to get hit and get kicked. And as a result, my time kind of faded away for that. But, you know, when I saw how God used a silly thing like martial arts. And I started seeing people getting saved. And I knew that as I shared with people and felt like, man, am I just wasting my time in this? And today I can think of so many people who I know are walking with the Lord who I was sharing with them. There's one guy who, Bob Mitchell, who's a, a Christian now. He was the 
one of the meanest people that there was in the martial arts. Just a mean, nasty guy. He's the head of martial arts for Christ now. But I remember talking to Bob and just getting scorned back and him making fun of me. And he was so hostile to the gospel. And man, could he hit hard too. And, and it was just like, what's the point? And then one day as I was walking along outside the windows of Calvary Costa Mesa, and I looked in there and I saw Bob Mitchell in the back row with his hands lifted up, praising the Lord. I was like, wow, amazing. A stupid little thing like martial arts that God used in this way. And I believe that there are just tons of ways that God can cause us to tailor our approach in a way that will preach the gospel. But it's so critically important that we not lose sight of our goal, that we not lose our focus because ultimately that's what can happen. Ultimately, historically, that's what almost always happens in great movements. And we're foolish to think that it won't happen in our movement. We're foolish to think that it won't happen in our lives. It's so easy for something that starts fresh and new to just turn into a business or a machine or a self-propagating organization and in the shuffle to lose sight of what it is that we are really called to do. As an example, and, and I, I, I'm hesitant to use them as an example because you know, I, I've spoken with great affection many times for what God has done through Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, and I believe the guy loves the Lord and has a heart for God and wants to do anything he can to serve God. But at the same time, it provides a cautionary tale, and I, and I just want to give you this to think about, and it's, and it's my prayer for them. They've started a few years ago a program called The Peace Plan, and I know that the whole motivation behind it is to respond to this scripture. Becoming all things to all men that by all means, whatever it takes, Rick Warren says, that I might save some. But here's how it goes when things become a machine. Originally, the peace plan was designed and set up, and they announced it at Anaheim Stadium. And they said, there are five basic problems in the world. And what we want to do is to challenge the church of Jesus Christ to respond to these five problems. And they said the five problems are, first of all, there's a spiritual lostness. And that's what we would call, man, there are people who are spiritually lost. And I would agree, if you're talking about the problems of the world, start there. So there's a, there's a spiritual lostness. Now, there's also, as he said, a lack of godly leaders, a lack of people who would stand up and represent God and, and serve him. And so I would go, yep, boy, that's for sure. And then the other three needs that he said, there's poverty, there's disease like AIDS and other scourges that are going on around the world. And finally, there's an, a lack of education. And so the peace plan was declared to be something that would respond to these five great needs. And so the peace plan as it was unfolded was each one stood for a letter from the word peace. And so the very first thing to deal with the fact that people are lost was to plant new churches, to go into areas where there isn't a place where the gospel is being preached and to start a new church. And that's a great place to start, no doubt about it. The E in peace 
became obviously you need to equip leaders to to uh, deal with the fact that there aren't enough godly leaders out there, so we need to train pastors and equip leaders in order to be involved with these new churches that you're going to plant. And then the A was assist the poor, the C was to care for those who are sick, and, and the E was to educate the next generation. And, you know, there were a lot of people who were really skeptical about it. I, I listened to it, and I go, sounds great. As Christians, hey, we ought to say, yeah, that's the great commandment. We should get behind this. And, and I believe that the intentions of the program were completely pure and good. I don't believe, as some people do, that it was some new age conspiracy to take over the world or, you know, that the, that the banking community is behind it or something. No, this is somebody going, this world is a mess. I'm making a bunch of money off a popular book. How can we fix the world? And I, and I think give credit where credit is due. However, here's what has happened to the peace plan, and I'm only using it as an example that you will read about, and our kids, if the Lord tarries, will read about it in church history. The, the, the whole idea of planting new churches presented some problems. It's the very first point of the peace plan, but when they would go into areas, there already were some churches. The problem is they weren't very good churches. There were Orthodox churches. There were Roman Catholic churches. There were churches who were from, you know, dead uh, Protestant traditional churches or whatever. But if you're going to work with those people, you can't tell them we need to come in and start new churches. So the first thing they did is change the program. And it was no longer plant new churches. Now the P in peace stood for partner with other churches. Well, okay, it's not so bad. But also they found that that first need of the fact that people are spiritually lost that became sort of offensive. And so a little more mellow version of it was there's a spiritual emptiness. Spiritual emptiness, can it's a lot less threatening. Yeah, there's something missing. But still, opportunity to preach the gospel, certainly. So you have spiritual emptiness as a need. Now, the need for godly leaders, which was the second big problem in the world, that started presenting a problem because you don't want to call people ungodly. And they realized that a lot of their problems as they went into different countries was the corrupt local leadership, the political leadership that was so awful. And so what they needed to do is to try to put leverage on corrupt leaders and get them to, you know, want their people to be blessed and helped. And so rather than now for the need to be, you know, to raise godly leadership, now they changed it to we need to teach people servant leadership. But what it became is basically a way of dealing with political leaders. It was no longer about training pastors to run these churches because we're not going to plant churches. We're just going to partner with other churches. And rather than train the pastors of those churches, what we need to do is deal with the political corruption that keeps good things from happening. The last three points, you know, when it comes to Poverty and sickness and education, everyone's pretty much on board for those, so they weren't a problem. But gradually as it developed, even the idea of partnering with other churches became somewhat problematic. And so today, the P in peace stands for something completely different. Now it stands for promote reconciliation. And so what they're trying to do now, they realize, hey, we need to get people together. And reconciliation in, the, in their language is 
that we need to go into racial groups that have been mistreated and we need to apologize for what our ancestors did to them. We need to humble ourselves. Basically, we need to find common ground with all the people and we need to bring people together. I'm all for that. I am not at all going to say, hey, promoting reconciliation? No, we should be against reconciliation. We should be bitter and mean, and, and we shouldn't work with political leaders. We should. No, I, I am completely in favor of all five of those points of the peace plan, even as they exist today. But what happens? Along the way, the greatest need that people have has now been pushed out of the way to do these other good things. And the great commandment silences the Great Commission. And that is what happens throughout the history of the church to God's people. You start out with great intentions, but as long as you lose your focus, you'll be doing good things and basically polishing the brass on a sinking ship. You'll be trying to help a world that's doomed to hell. You'll be trying to fix problems that you'll never be able to fix. In the meantime, the real problem will be neglected, and that real problem could be fixed. And if somebody starves to death, they're going to spend an eternity in a banquet in heaven. And if they're sick and you can give them the truth of the gospel and they accept Jesus Christ, yeah, you haven't healed AIDS, but you've made it possible for them to be healed forever, for all the pain of their lives, the tears to be wiped away, a, a whole promising future. And so Paul says, believe me, I got creative, but every bit of it was so that I would win some, so that I could save some so that the gospel could be preached. For Paul, it was all about getting people saved. It was all about the gospel. For us, so often, our temptation is to wander off in our creativity, to become entertainers or to become good citizens or to vote the right people in or to stop abortion or to, to do whatever else that may be a great cause but when all of a sudden compromise leads us to sacrifice the one real message that we have, that Jesus Christ died for you, and you don't have to spend an eternity in the judgment of hell, that you could spend an eternity in heaven, well, that's offensive. That's something that we're willing to give up. The one thing that we have that can make a difference is the first thing that we compromise in trying to accommodate people. And Paul says, I won't do that. I wouldn't do it. And check it out in verse 23. This I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. He said, this isn't just for those lost people out there. He said, my partaking in the gospel is at stake here. Paul never came off like, I have arrived, and now I want some other people to go along with me. Paul said, if I'm not doing this, remember last week he said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I can't help but preach the gospel. Now he says, I'm declaring the gospel because I want to be a partaker. Because the way I read it, this is what people do who are Christians. 
Now, in our society today, even the idea of being a Christian has become suspect. And so people say, well, you know, we don't call ourselves Christians. That might be offensive. So we say we're Christ followers. We kind of watch them from a distance along with other great leaders. And Paul didn't have that problem. He knew what he was called to do. And he said, I want to be a partaker of this. I want to be saved myself. And he didn't just take that as, a, as an assumption. Check out the last verse of the chapter. We'll look at it next week. But he said, I have preached to others. Well, he said, he said uh, discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He said, I'm not even taking my own salvation to the bank. I am doing everything I can do to stay focused on what matters most, to live and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, because to me, that's what it is to be a Christian, Paul would say. If I'm not doing that, i got to wonder whether I'm really a part of what God's doing. Wow. What a, what a check to all of us. Well, we can point at the emergence or the liberal churches or the whatever else and say, oh, look at them. But now let's bring it home to us. How much are we doing for the sake of the gospel? How much are we doing to see that people find Jesus Christ? If you really believe that everyone out there who doesn't know Jesus is in serious eternal trouble and in danger of hellfire, Aren't you going to want to tell them? But how did you become a Christian? Presumably, it's because you came to that conclusion. And yet, why is it that it's okay for you, but you don't care enough to share it with anyone else? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time you led someone to Jesus Christ? When was the last time you did something specifically for the purpose of people getting saved? You can fill up shoeboxes with toys, Because, well, you know, our church is doing it and kids need toys. God knows it'll probably help the economy. Get some of those toys out of here back to Mexico where they were made. You know, but how about as you're packing those toys away, not going, oh, man, I hate this. But instead going, praying over those toys and going, God, I want a little kid to get saved for eternity. I want to meet a kid in heaven who I gave him a shoebox. That's my motive. That's my heart. That's what it is to be a Christian, to have that kind of concern, to go before God and ask for a way to make a difference in the life of someone else. It's like when we have opportunities, like last week when I talked about giving money for the churches down in El Salvador. I know that when you give them money, people will get saved as a result of it, and it's like, that's something that excites me. But how about talking to somebody that I know? How about reaching out to people around me? Am I, well, you know, it's kind of inconvenient, might be offensive, might not, you know, be comfortable. I'd much rather hang out with Christians. Yeah, but people are dying for eternity. How about like volunteering to coach Little League? Not because, you know, you know that if you are the coach, your kid gets to pitch. But to, go, but to go, 
No, because I need to build a bridge to the community because maybe there's some little kid in my city that God wants me to bring to the Lord. He'll be saved for eternity because, because I did that. Even though it means accommodating your schedule, even though it means sacrificing your comfort, how much is saving people from hell worth to you? How much is it worth to me? How much is it worth to us as a church? Is it even in the forefront of our mind? If it isn't, then we are wandering off into doing good things and keeping a program going. And boy, it's always fun to get together. And I can't wait for the Christmas potluck. And people are dying for eternity. Do we care? Paul cared. And he kept his focus on the gospel. And that's what he would tell us. First of all, be willing to be flexible. Stop being so stubborn and only wanting it your way. And then, in getting creative, how can you promote the gospel? How can you deliver the truth in a way that will make a difference? There are a whole lot of ways to participate in the gospel. And, I, and God gives us those opportunities. There are some people, I think of the people here who are involved in our 1013 uh, addiction ministries and how little they knew when they were just living the life of a drunk that God was letting them get drunk and destroying their lives to set them up so that they could be there for somebody else. And God says, okay, you're ruined enough, you're drunk enough, now I'm going to give you a chance to talk to people about addictions and to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many different ways could God use if we were flexible? But what a waste of time. If all we're doing is fixing the world and souls are being lost. Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? I'm thankful to the people who are trying to fix this world. And I don't want to criticize them. But you know what? The biggest problem this world has is sin. And I want to make sure that I'm a part of delivering people's souls, of helping them to discover and to recognize that they can be saved for eternity. And that's what it is to be a Christian. That's our calling, each of us personally. That's our calling as a body of Christ, as a church. Let's pray. Lord, we do repent and we're sorry for those times when we have been so rigid and stubborn and, well, we just like things the way they are and so we don't want to be made to be uncomfortable. And as a result, we've missed opportunities. But Lord, we're also sorry for those times when we're busy doing good things and being a nice neighbor and being a good employee and an employer and being friendly to the checker at the store and everybody else, but we never got around to the gospel. We never got around to giving people opportunities to, to be saved for eternity. Lord, we don't want to just be people who witness with our lives. We want to open our mouths so that people will be saved. And Lord, we know we can't save them all. But like Paul said, that if we could do anything that we could do to save some, may we be those kind of people. 
Lord, if we need to be convicted, convict us. If we just need a fine adjustment to the focus of our life, then Lord, please do that. We thank you in Jesus' name.